A bit lit, celebrating creativity and research of all kinds. Hello and welcome to this A Bit Lit session on Kazuo Ishiguro and his latest novel, Clara and the Sun. My name's Dominic Dean, I work on contemporary British fiction and I'm based at the University of Sussex here in Brighton. I've been interested in Ishiguro's work uh, for some time, I've published on Ishiguro's novels in peer-reviewed journals and Ishiguro forms a major focus of my forthcoming book on violence against children in contemporary British fiction. And I'm joined today uh, to have a chat about Ishiguru, Clara and the Sun, uh, by two distinguished colleagues. And we have here Amelia DeFalco from the University of Leeds and Eugene Teo from the University of Bournemouth. And Amelia, could I ask you to introduce yourself first? Of course. So yes, my name is Amelia DeFalco. I'm Associate Professor of Medical Humanities in the School of English at University of Leeds, as you mentioned. And um, my work um, primarily concerns um, the depictions, uh, studying the depictions of, uh, in literature and film, depictions of non-human care, very broadly speaking, which includes, but is not limited to, um, non-human animal uh, care and robot care. And this is part of a larger project that I'm doing on post-human care. And um, in fact, some of Ishiguro's work, uh, work is um, appears in the book that I'm working on called uh, Curious Kin, Fictions of Post-Human Care. Thanks, Amelia. Well, fantastic to have you uh, with us today. And Eugene, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Dom, and thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Eugene Teo. Um, I'm a senior lecturer at Bournemouth University um, in Communications and English uh, in the Faculty of Media and Communication. My research originally with my PhD was about Kazuo Ishiguro and memory, um, which was my first um, monograph uh, in 2014 with Palgrave. And then my research has expanded um, by accident into looking at uh, science fiction, uh, nostalgia, and robots, a uh, robot or robotic carers um, in science fiction. And recent research has looked at um, films like Robots and Frank, which Amelia has uh, done just before me, and also Big Hero 6 and the Humans TV series. Um, just be interested in kind of how that human robot interaction works with humans and with care work. Um, and also looking at uh, nostalgia and science fiction in general. Um, so I've recently co-edited with a colleague from Brighton University, uh, Iris Mosuzanis, um, a special issue of the journal Science Fiction Studies on nostalgia and science fiction. Um, and how kind of science fiction is always about looking back at our human history, but in a way that is quite effective um, uh, in terms of the human condition. Uh, I think that's that's me. <laughs> Thanks, Eugene. Well, um, great to have you both um, uh, participating in the discussion today. And before we get into uh, talk about some of the major themes and questions we might explore with Clara and the Sun, I'm just going to give a very quick introduction uh, to this novel. So Clara and the Sun is Ishiguru's eighth novel, and it was published in March of 2021. We're going to have a detailed discussion about the novel today, so I must uh, warn our audience that if you've not read it yet, there will be some spoilers involved. 
Um, Clara and the Sun uh, arrived uh, following a period when Ishiguro has been increasingly celebrated and his position as a leading uh, contemporary writer in English has been increasingly secured and uh, well-recognized. In 2017, Ishiguro was awarded uh, the Nobel Prize in Literature, and shortly after, he was given high honors by the governments of both uh, Japan, his country of birth, and the United Kingdom, the country in which he's lived since childhood. Ishiguro is both a very popular contemporary novelist and one who has uh, received and continues to receive a significant uh, attention within the literary academy. And Ishiguro studies has now clearly emerged, I think, as a subfield uh, within contemporary literary studies. Ishiguro is well known for the combination of a subtle, understated style of narration alongside um, devastating revelations of ethical, political, and emotional trauma. And his new novel is no different in that respect as well. Clara and the Sun is set in a future that is very near to ours, but which has made a few key advances in artificial intelligence and related biotechnologies. Within the future depicted by the novel, some children are genetically engineered, it's lifted in the novel's terminology for enhanced academic ability. And these children often have bought for them artificial friends who provide companionship and personal assistance. One such artificial friend or AF is Clara, the novel's narrator and protagonist. And the novel begins in an inner city store where Clara is uh, for sale alongside some other AFs, including some products that are more advanced than herself. From the store window, Clara watches, keenly observing the street outside and particularly looking towards the sun, an entity of considerable importance to her because she is in fact a solar powered android. And it's to the, uh, she attributes quasi divine power to the sun particularly after the sun appears to revive a dead homeless person on the street outside to life. Clara associates the sun with ecological health, and she has an abiding, very powerful hatred of all pollution, a phenomenon she attributes particularly to a piece of machinery referred to as the Kooting's machine, which produces dark fumes that block out the sun's rays from reaching the store. Uh, Clara is eventually purchased by a 14-year-old girl called Josie, who is herself a lifted child who lives with her mother but suffers from a serious illness. Josie has a strong relationship with a neighbour child, it's called Rick, who has not been lifted and who faces some discrimination as a result. Clara is determined to help Josie to get better and to protect her loving relationship with Rick. And as a result, Clara attempts to make a bargain with the son praying to him to protect Josie's life, as he once did for the homeless person on the street, in return for which Clara promises to destroy the polluting Kooting's machine. Josie's mother, meanwhile, unexpectedly asks Clara to imitate Josie, and it's eventually revealed that she intends for Clara to integrate Josie's intelligence uh, if and when Josie dies, becoming a continuation of Josie inside a reconstructed body. And the novel is a multi-layered and for Shiguro typically subtle reflection on issues of the status of the human and the relationship between the human 
and ecology, technology and ethics in a rapidly changing world and within the intimate uh, circumstances of lived experience. So that's a very quick um, summary introduction to Clara and the Sun. And uh, now we're going to have a chat and, and pick some of those, uh, some of those issues and, and share our reflections on the novel in a bit more, more detail. And uh, first off, um, I wonder, um, Amelia and Eugene, whether we could have a think about um, how far Clara and the Sun echoes, continues some of the themes and ideas and even the tone of Ishiguro's uh, previous work um, and how it uh, diverges uh, from that previous work as well and, and what also seems, seems new about it. Um, so, um, Eugene, would you like to uh, start perhaps with uh, some reflections on that? I think there are similarities uh, as well as differences. Stylistically, um, I think a lot of Ishiguro fans and readers would be very familiar with um, his first person narration, how a lot of the characters begin the novels. Um, like in an sort of floating world or in the remains of the day, where the, the, the protagonist almost expects you to know them intimately, um, to, to almost be maybe even part of the industry that they're in. And to draw you, and, and Ishiguro draws you into narrative that way, it's almost a conspiratorial um, aside, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, you know a little bit, bit about my history, I'm going to confide in you. And that just is so tempting for a reader just to be taken in uh, on uh, for, for a very uh, uh, interesting ride that way. And you, you almost have that sense with, with the, the beginnings of Clara and the Sun. But I think what's different here is, um, and some people have said, and I think, uh, and I think Amelia, you, 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 you get a sense of that as well, that there is a bit of a distance with the Clara character, which I think you also get with Kathy Asia, Never Let Me Go. Um, and I suspect this is also deliberate on Ishiguro's part because these are non-human kind of storytellers, non-human narrators um, in these novels. So there is a similarity and yet quite a bit of a difference. Um, and what I, from, as you said, this is the first reading for, for, for many of us. And, and I, de I detected that maybe he, he has done something quite different. We're no longer looking back because even with Never Let Me Go, with narrators with um, foreshortened lifespans, they, they, there's still a sense of Kathy H taking stock of her life and looking back on her past and trying to remember things and thinking about regrets and so on. You don't really get this here. You almost have someone, a character who's a blank slate, um, who is eager to become an artificial friend and learn and you know has had only a really small span of time to pick up all these things about what humans do and what how humans behave. But at the very end, uh, and again, you know, spoiler alert, she finds herself in a yard and she's quite happy to be on her own. We're talking about Clara here, um, to order her memories. And that hit me like a ton of bricks at the end because I thought up to this point, Ishiguro is a bit different. He is no longer a character looking back on their past. And there you have a character who's absolutely really wanting to go back and reorder their memories like you, you would have a photo album just kind of reorder all the photographs and just want some space and time to, to do that and that's a struck me as a very human thing to want to do um and 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 so 
I guess for that reason, just at the very end, suddenly Clara is, in terms of just narrators alone, already very much back in the territory of, you know, Ed Suko from Paleview Hills, Ono from and us of the floating worlds, you know, um, or even Kathy H from Never Let Me Go, wanting to make sense of the past properly, but with solitude. And that kind of struck me as, as something that's kind of following in that lineage. So in typical Ishiguro fashion, you know, I got deceived at the start and, you know, came back to hit me at the end. Thanks, Eugene. And Amelia, I wonder whether you have uh, similar uh, reactions in terms of the relationship to Ishiguro's uh, previous work, or did you think a little bit differently about that? Or are there... Uh, points that that Eugen's made that you'd like to to follow up on at all, just on this issue of the relationship between Clara and the Sun and Ishiguro's earlier work. Well, I'm really glad to hear Eugen's take on it because I don't have the um, knowledge of Ishiguro's work that he does. So for me, um, um, you know, I can't really place it in his oeuvre, so to speak, but okay. I. I have been working on um, writing on Never Let Me Go, um, the, the, the work that Eugene mentioned as well. So for me, that was the obvious, um, the obvious parallel. And I, I see a lot of similarities there, um, as, as Eugene mentioned, certainly in the narration, because I think one of the things that's so compelling for me um, that we might want to talk about later is, is really this first person narration, non-human narrator which, um, and the kind of work that that can do for a narration, uh, for a narrative, and the way that that seduces a reader towards a kind of familiarity and can produce a potentially a kind of uncanny, um, uh, a kind of uncanny uh, connection, right, between this kind of, that making the the non-human at once that kind of, I'm thinking of like the conventional distinct um, definition of the uncanny is kind of familiar and strange at the same time. So you have this incredible intimacy and familiarity with uh, a completely unfamiliar entity or being or whatever we're going to choose to call uh, Clara um, as, as perhaps we'll talk about later. It sounds like um, robot is a bit verboten <laughs> as, as a term, but um, I think there are these parallels between Clara and Kathy, and even in their names, um, you know, the fact that you have these Clara and Kathy both spelled with a K and they seem, they're, they're echoes of one another. And I read, I read this novel as a kind of, if almost a continuation of Never Let Me Go in many ways. Um, it explores many of the same ideas, but also to me very much in a similar style with this first person um, naive, quasi non-human though Kathy is certainly human biologically she's not human in terms of her status within her culture and community right she's entirely an outsider and excluded from all of the the rights and and um privileges that would go along with human status so and and you have that outsider um observing absorbing as you said right um Eugene just constantly observing and so it prov provides this really um special insight for the reader, right? It, that you are at once a, a part of and excluded from, and much like the narrator. Um, and special being, I, I think that word is in my mind because right, such an important word for this novel. And I think that's the thing that uh, also really seemed um, so powerful connecting the two novels, this, this 
preoccupation with specialness, uniqueness, individuality, um, even something as the novel uses the word, like this idea of this almost ineffable something that qualifies one for human status and um, the degree to which non-human entities might be seen to have that something on the one hand and on the other, the degree to which these non-human entities might in fact challenge that status and disrupt it to the point where it, it no longer has meaning or has any import right within within the culture. So I see, I feel like this novel in many ways continues and in fact almost amplifies many of the questions that were so prominent in the in Never Let Me Go and, and poses them maybe in slightly different ways, but I feel like is is more urgent in it in the way it poses them as well. Thanks, Amelia. Yeah, I think that is those are really fascinating reflections that you've both given there. And that that connection to Never Let Me Go, um, even though of course it's not the preceding uh, Ishiguro novel and I want to maybe come back to any connections with the, the one that is immediately preceding it, The Buried Giant, in a bit. But but yeah, I think that there are those very um, clear, um, very compelling um, connections between Clara and the Sun and, and Never Let Me Go. I mean, you've obviously both, uh, between you mentioned several of them now, I think as well, the fact of just how important euphemism is in both novels as well. Um, there's clearly a sort of almost a continued um, world there. And also in these relationships um, that have to prove that they are kind of um, truly loving uh, human effective relationships. And that has to be sort of proved in order to access some kind of external um, reward or set of rights. Um, and that of course is something that uh, uh, Rick and Josie experience in Clara and the Sun and it, is quite a in quite direct continuity, it seems to me, with what Kathy and Tommy um, go through um, in Never Let Me Go. And of course, in in both situations, it's not uh, everything is not quite as they as they think, um, or doesn't turn out perhaps in entirely the way that they envisage. I was also interested in terms of echoes uh, to Ishiguro's previous work, going right back to. Um, the start of Ishiguro's career and A Pale View of Hills, of course, is his first novel back in 1982, um, where you again have a very um, somewhat compromised uh, narrator. Um, and again, a narrator who is very much in, whose narration is very uncanny, just to pick up on a word that, uh, that you used, um, Amelia, and that, that uncanniness of the, of the narration is something that seems to be continued right throughout Ishiguro's um, career. And even that, that sort of something that qualifies you for human status, obviously a pale view of Hills is not interested in the post-human in the same way or with the same set of terminology that we get at these much more recent points in Ishiguro's career. But um, there is still a focus on what's a very racialized uh, essentialism that kind of equates to human status, um, certainly in terms of the rights that one can access um, through it, um, that comes up already in the um, a pale view of hills and its um, sort of look back towards mid-20th century um, fascisms as well. 
So lots of lots of echoes to Ishiguro's earlier career there. I, I just wondered, as, as I mentioned, um, of course, the immediately pre- pre- um, preceding Ishiguro novel um, is The Buried Giant, which was notoriously something of a, an apparent, at least, um, genre departure for Ishiguro. Um, I don't know whether either of you have any thoughts on echoes of that novel that are coming through here in, in Clara and the Sun at all, or, or if not echoes, then how you would read the, the difference between them. Well, for me anyway, the, just from the reading experience, um, Bur- The Buried Giant is, I think, in terms of you're thinking about the percentage of the novel, mostly in the third person, um, Dom will correct me if I'm wrong because I, I feel like Dom has a better memory than I have in general of most things. Um, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I think it, it, it's mostly third person, which um, is a bit of a departure from Ishiguro. And so he's left the, the comfort of a first person narrator behind. And the first person only comes in from, um, I think, Gawain when, when he has his reveries in, in between. So almost like a episodes that are a bit of an aside to the main story and moments of reflection. Everything else is told in the third person from an unknown narrator. Loads of people try to guess who it is. But but in general, the protagonists are not the, you know, if you see Axel and Beatrice as a protagonist, they're not the narrators. I think that distancing effect was something he probably felt he needed it because he wanted to write about national collective memory uh, links to you know almost like an allegory of 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 20th century atrocities and so on and in order to write that with a more objective frame framing he felt that he needed maybe to go into the third person to do that so i feel probably if anything the Barry Jane probably has the greatest distance from clara and the sun compared to all his earlier novels. Saying that, there are other things that I think are similar in the sense that he is getting better and better, I think, with each novel. But people like to seem to be putting Never Let Me Go, Clara in the Sun and Buried Giant in between them as uh, a trilogy. I think they used to call one of his earliest, you know, uh, sets of novels another trilogy. So you group the unconsoled with, with all that, with When We Were Orphans and so on. But I think with this, there's almost like some kind of sci-fi weird fiction trilogy that Ishiguro has kind of created um, that journalists or, or critics seem to want to, you know, put them in this category. And I guess, if anything, it's used to think of the Buried Giant as him, as part of his journey into using genre fiction, or at least in, in academia. Unfortunately, it's quite pejoratively used, you know, the, the term genre fiction, but even though it's... It's it's becoming much more respected now, um, but but there's this almost this sense that he he wants to use genre fiction as a vehicle now for themes, and he's no longer shy about doing it. Because I think when he started off with Never Let Me Go, I remember then all the interviews. No, 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 it's not science fiction. You know, I don't know what science fiction is. This is something I just want to do because I'm interested in in in, in having a narrator who does this. Um, but now he seems to openly say it is science fiction. So he's clearly changed his mind about how he felt about science fiction and how he feels about Never Let Me Go. Um, and he, he was mostly open about Buried Giant being fantasy. And, uh, and now he's very open uh, you know, about 
Clarence Sun being labeled a science fiction, he's like, he's fine with it. So I think he's just more comfortable with using genre for thematic purposes than he did before. So I think that there is that link to the Barry Giant in the sense that he's becoming a, a, a more experimental, as, as experimental Ishiguro can be, with using speculative uh, fantasy genres for specific themes and his own concerns for the future of, I guess, you know, humanity and, and, and so on and technology. So I guess those are the immediate thoughts I have about similarities and differences with the Barry Giant. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I think it does, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting to reflect on that confidence that Ishiguro has, is showing now. And uh, perhaps it goes back even to the point in my intro about the fact that you know, even since uh, Never Let Me Go came out, and of course he was already a very established author at, at that point, but he has had you know several really quite major honours since then. So he is very much in the kind of nothing left to prove sort of uh, <laughs> now, I would think. Um, so so maybe this confidence. But I think you've got a point there, yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps I'm just staying a little bit with the echoes of uh, Never Let Me Go. Well, there are those very um, close echoes, as we've discussed. But at the same time, Never Let Me Go came out in 2005. We're now in 2021. And a great deal has changed about the world in between those two points, it seems uh, one could argue. Um, you know, in all uh, kinds of ways. Obviously, we had um, the uh, financial crisis at the end of the uh, 2000s. Um, we've um, had uh, major migration crises around the world, other kinds of conflicts. Um, we've had greater awareness, but also problems with dealing with the existential threat of climate change. And now, of course, we have the COVID-19 pandemic, which um, would have... Um, overshadowed, I guess, uh, the final phases of Ishiguro's writing of this uh, novel. So, and I think all of these various um, quite serious crises that humanity has experienced and is continuing to experience have impacted on some ways in the, the discourse around the status of, of the human, um, what it means to be human, what um, the post-human might mean, and also about how you know, access to that status is is obviously uh, unequally and unevenly uh, distributed. So there's a relationship to to class there as well. Um, so Amelia, perhaps I could uh, come back to you. Do you have any any thoughts on those relationships between sort of human status and class status, and how that uh, perhaps reflects the the world as it's um, developed in the past um, decade or so, as it's coming through here in Clara and the Sun? Just a small question. Just a small one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I absolutely see your point, Dom, uh, about the, the, these, you know, major upheavals and, and changes. But at the same time, I feel like, I, I guess I see more parallels between those the perspectives in the that novel, the Never Let Me Go, and this current novel that then um, say more parallels than than um, conflict or or shift, and it feels like very much like I said, like a continuation that I've and and especially since it does operate in a world, in both cases the novels operate in these worlds that are at least the view we get of these worlds seem so um, kind of um, estranged 
from contemporary, the specifics of contemporary politics, shall we say, as opposed to the the more general kind of overarching, um, ongoing uh, turmoil and and conflict associated with um, migration, immigration, and and tyranny, <laughs> basically. Um, so, but I feel like there's not. I, I, I can't see myself because, and also as I say, I'm not an issue girl scholar in any sense, not remotely. So I can't see any kind of stark break or, or division between these that, that, you know, I don't know his work well enough, but I feel like there's an ongoing inquiry into, as I say, into this, um, into status. I, I'm not, you know, I'm speaking here of status, human status or non-human status or kind of ontological status, right, is what I'm talking about, um, that that is maybe um, more exaggerated at this point. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a more of a sounding of an alarm in this, in this text as opposed to it never let me go as, as dire as a situation that novel is. It feels... Um, it feels like some of the concerns of the previous, of not the previous novel, but the, the previous text that we mentioned are um, made more explicit, brought to the fore in ways that were maybe more latent in, in Never Let Me Go. And I'm just thinking of, I mean, obviously there's so much to do with um, um, the, this, the human status and what the privileges afforded the human and the way that obviously um, any being any entity any matter that is not part of that category um is when it comes down to it fundamentally disposable right um and available for use and then for disposal and i think it feels like as much a comment on capitalism as it does on any particular kind of um put it political regime or political um uh, um, occurrence, but I feel like in in this case, in that in that novel, you have this these literal copies. I mean, these these entities that are copies, and so then are then as a result, um, um, can be treated are some are fundamentally illegitimate in some way, right? They are don't have that human status that allows them to um, be basically valuable right valuable in terms of um their uh, value a kind of intrinsic value shall we say they have a utilitarian value um whereas and then in this case i feel like that's ongoing um but and in both cases you have a narrator who seems blithely um unaware right of the larger repercussions of this kind of this uh, these kind of hierarchy and, and and accepting this naive acceptance that I think so many people um, find, um, if not confusing, even confounding. Having taught never let me go a number of times, students are, express such frustration at the complete um, acquiescence, right? That that the characters um, seem to seem to um, undergo. So. I mean, I know I'm actually moving really away from your question, partly because I think I, I don't have a strong sense of how this novel um, speaks to specific 
kind of um, shifts as opposed to more as I see it more as a response to a larger historical and sociopolitical narrative around um, the, in, let's say, increasing, but always there, um, um, inscription of value and disposability and the way that populations are, are deemed, you know, expendable. And that feels like it's just, it's this ongoing attention to that and that we see happening constantly, COVID, simple, like everything, just like this further accentuating and exaggeration of these inequalities, which um, I, I think Eugene and I were speaking about earlier, the way that he uses tech, tech, um, biotech as well, to basically further, that further, those technological innovations just further accentuate and illuminate existing inequalities right that they are that they are um, become a kind of lens for viewing our existing um, social and political structures I'm not sure if that fully answers that's my wide-ranging um, <laughs> meandering um, response but <laughs> I mean I think that's a, a really helpful summary of <laughs> this Ichiguru's um, cumulative project really it's mm -hmm. a that does develop with every novel. So I, I completely agree with your um, your mapping of that um, project and the fact that it, it is always looking towards a larger um, canvas than just the, you know, than any kind of direct parallels with um, particular recent uh, developments in the um, uh, political or social world or, or indeed even uh, world of technology. Um, I, I do think I think there are there are other arguments that one can make about those parallels that, mm -hmm. that there are some more you know specific engagements with particular um, pieces of history in in the novels but uh, and perhaps we can come back to some of those later but I think overall it's absolutely true that um, Maybe, there is that um, one thing I would say is like I guess I get a sense of the like I mentioned the um, the there is that amplification that I mentioned. The fact that it, that the novel uses the word fascism, I feel like, mm -hmm. is quite notable in a way that that like the even the inclusion of that term seems very. It, it really, really struck me. It struck me as it, as an indictment in a way that I feel like he his um, the rest of the novel tends to shy away from. Like it, it actually is this moment. Of exposure, because I feel like there there is a way that that we are kind of seduced into kind of this this kind of ethical ambiguity, and and whereas when we're reminded of the specifics, like you know, of of fascism there, and that someone, I mean, having that come from a character, I think draws attention maybe in a new way, and maybe in a way that responds more directly to the moment. But I think, like I say you both you and Eugene know this 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 um authorial landscape so much better than me I'm super eager to hear your thoughts on it I I, I really like your point about the word fascism there and my you know, thought I was just wondering where, when you made that point whether this is in fact the first time that the word fascism comes up in, in Ishiguro I don't know it, it, it there may be previous occasions um one particular novel that would be interesting to look at uh, to search for the word fascism, of course, would be the remains of the day because I'm not sure that the word is used. Mm. Uh, Eugene, I can't remember. I can't remember either. 
you know, yeah. the word appeasement turned up a lot. Yeah. Um, Hitler and probably Nazis, but, you know, I guess that's probably enough without having to say fascism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it's the first time the word fascism is used in all of Ishiguro's... Uh, oh, I, I wouldn't claim it's that. Very <laughs> rare. Certainly, certainly it's very rare. So I, th I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really interesting observation about that, that word. Just to continue with the... Um, the points around uh, human status and so on, and how Ishiguro sort of always uh, returns to that in in different, you know, just sometimes slightly adjusted contexts um, throughout his his novels. Again, I, I'll just go back really quickly to his very first novel, *A Pale View of Hills*, which I apologise for doing again. It's it's sort of my personal favourite of Ishiguro's novels, so <laughs> tend to go back to it a lot. But this, uh, but that's issue of human status and the disposability, which you were discussing, uh, Amelia, of whatever is deemed to be non-human or kind of um, at least approximate to the non-human. Um, it comes up in a really subtle way, even from that very first uh, novel, where there's, an, there's a sort of parallel of imagery that's drawn between the drowning of a child and the drowning of some kittens. Mm. And and the drowning of the kittens is justified in the, the moment by the fact that the kittens are non-human. They're just kind of, you know, little animals, just the same as, same as rats. So, you know, if we want to dispose of them, we can. And uh, the way that that comes about in the novel is clearly in parallel to this instant where the mother, and it's the mother who wants to drown the kittens as well, and elsewhere a mother is, is um, drowning her child. <laughs> so I think Ishiguro has been concerned with this right from the start and he does keep coming back to it obviously and uh, takes on more more baggage and new new angles as, as things develop just on that point um i wonder whether we could just note specifically that of course um clara and the sun isn't only concerned with those who are deemed to be of uh, lesser or sort of subhuman status and therefore are disposable it also has a higher class of humans as well who have been um, you know, um, elevated, uh, lifted um, through gene editing. And I wonder um, whether we could say a bit more about that, about how um, gene editing technology turns up uh, in the novel and the way that it's treated and what that means for some of the, the themes that we've touched on already. Uh, uh, Eugene, would you like to speak to that one? I'll try. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on gene editing, but I mean, just from... Anecdotally, just from reading, listening to interviews with Ishiguro, um, a lot of the advance that came from the technology uh, surrounding CRISPR and uh, and its potential uh, use in, in all kinds of areas um, seems to trigger something within Ishiguro. And I like going back to what you said, Amelia, I, I really like what you said about status um, as well as this ongoing project of Ishiguro's about the status of humans in, in different walks of life, I suppose, or even non-human entities. Because I think you, you've hit some kind of nail on the head. I think it is an ongoing concern, kind of starting with the pale view of hills, whether it's kittens are humans or or, 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 or or even, you know, different ethnicities. He is, I think, very interested in this. And with, with gene editing, it seems to be his concern is about, you know, what happens if you then almost 
amp up the the global um, inequalities that we already have with regards to you know where you're from, the color of your skin, and you know uh, some countries that are just inherently you know wealthy or, or or have wealth because of other countries being marginalized. What if that gets even worse with people who then are able to make the most of gene editing? or not. Um, and this only certainly hinted at in the novel, but in doing so you then have e even a greater disparity or even more levels of class, if you like, more, more levels of social class. And um, you, you, you know, if there is then almost like um, technocratic, um, I don't know, aristocracy or something where, you know, the other super beings who, who hold the power, who have the enhanced intelligence or, or bodies and so on and they can live i don't know forever or um you know what what happens then to those who who are not part of it i and i noticed that in the novel i think vance the character mentions something about age which was interesting with because the the acronym was never really mentioned as a kind of a program of gene editing but i guess g and e stand for gene editing i don't know what a stands for maybe advanced gene editing but certainly there's a, a, a kind of a, a national program to lift as you say certain children so lift them not just in terms of their bodies and their minds but also i guess in terms of status and class what happens to everyone else so this is almost like um a much more advanced version of a lot of the concerns Ishiguro had, except the focus is not maybe so much on ethnicity. Although Amelia very rightly pointed out the word fascism just kind of is like a massive red light that just explodes from the text. You know, Ishiguro is rarely so explicit politically, and yet somehow you have fascism. So you start to wonder, is this militia, you know, predominantly right wing, white, middle-aged male characters, or, you know, you start to have all these images in your head. So that's also speaking at a very human level to kind of what's going on politically, what's been happening in the US. And obviously there seems to be understanding the novel set in the US. So you can't run away from those things as well. So I think that that sense of dialogue about, about class and about status is definitely ongoing with Ishiguro. Um, and certainly, you know, who should live, who should die. And, you know, I was very struck by the fact that Clara ends up in a yard. You know, she has provided four years of brilliant service to, to um, I've forgotten the name of the main character. Is it Sophie? Yes. Josie, that's it. And you ended with an I and E. So, you know, Josie benefited so much from that friendship. And, and you can even see from the body language, they're familiar with each other. But after four years or, or, or whatever, that's it. Um, and then that disposable nature, and I guess you should have, we should have guessed that from the whole shop window, you know, seen at the start, that they are just disposable. In fact, reading the novel, I was, I was worried about scenes of robots just getting beaten up. Mm. I, st I still have traumatic memories of watching the Animatrix for the first time. Um, you know, after the first Matrix film, just robots kind of getting destroyed by humans because they, they just did not like these artificial beings. So, you know, um, that didn't really happen, but you get a sense that you are just a tool to help humans and then you are in, on the scrap heap. I think Ishiguro is also saying something about if we then want to imbue these, these beings, these creatures, and Ishiguro calls them in, in interviews, with that kind of 
respect and and sense of decency. The word decency is something Ishiguro likes to say a lot um, in his writing and in interviews. You know, it almost harks back to an, old, an earlier period of how you value people for certain in certain ways. If you want to give that sense of decency to an artificial friend, but then you don't think anything about it when you then put them on a the scrap heap, you know, f- uh, a few years later, what does that say about us as humans? If we can be figured out with algorithms and with, with data, are we then equally disposable perhaps? Or if you're not, if you weren't gene edited, would you also then be easily disposable um is your life worth less so i think a lot of these really important questions mm. are kind of amplified in this novel in a typical understated kind of fashion um yeah amelia did you want to pick up on any of those oh there's so much there i think I, um i think your original question had to do with the the lifted the the lifteds versus the unlifteds in the bio tech right bioengineering and then I mean it, it gets to all those comments that Eugene had in, and the questions around that he, he raised so I feel like there's a lot of ways to go with it. I mean one thing that occurred to me is um, the degree to which the the biotech this genetic engineering is a reminder of the already muddied um, distinctions between the human and the non-human, like the, the tech and the human, right? That the fact that the human characters have already been techno technoized, right? They have been edited potentially, in fact, the most so-called successful, in the, that's the term that they use, um, humans are technologically modified, right? So I think there's just, I feel like um, again and again, the novel as very um, deceptively um, nudges or sometimes even shoves the reader towards a kind of acknowledgement of the arbitrariness of the categories that are still so powerfully entrenched, right? And these hierarchies, et cetera. So exposing the arbitrariness of them and the, the, um, the, not just not just the arbitrariness, but the randomness and and um, the the just the sheer luck of being on one side or the other, um, but at the same time the incredible um, rigidity of the boundaries and the impossibility of so so it's that again that double that double whammy of of knowing that they are there's nothing intrinsic or or natural or um, you know, foundational about them, and yet they are completely immune to mm. assault, even though they are completely imaginary, right? So I feel like there's that central tension that that can be so infuriating, much as it was for a lot of readers of Never Let Me Go, that I, you know, my students that you're well aware of how things could be different and how silly it all is and yet it, it I mean that's I guess uh, any hierarchy is is that way and and I think I think in your comments about the yard I mean really really draw attention to that but the the thing that struck me reading it was the this constant reminder that I had as a as a human reader um, of my own constant reminder of my own humanness and the own 
the, the limitations of my human perspective. So that I felt like it was constantly reminding me of my, in, my inescapable anthropocentrism, right? That I really had no strong sense of what Clara, uh, um, what it means to be a Clara, you know, what it means to be an AF, I should say, or an in particular Clara and what those preferences and what meaning she, um, she attaches. So the, the, as much as, you know, I can read it and I think are encouraged to read it as this, you know, a somewhat tragic, if not tragic, melancholy, melancholic narrative of, of disposal. I feel like that's coming at it from this distinctly anthropocentric view, right? Of what it means to be valuable and ethically significant, et cetera. But certainly I feel like that's what the novel was challenging me constantly to kind of reevaluate how I come to these, these assumptions that I go into the novel having and the way that they are supported and at this or and undermined often at the same time by many of the not only the events of the novel but the narration the narrator the narrative style so i feel like um many uh, i mean it's a novel full of questions actual questions not just raises questions but there are you know characters are constantly asking questions of clara and and i found myself often wondering you know the degree of irony with which those questions are pose and or sincerity and and to what degree do uh, this is a question I had for both of you like to what degree do we read this or do you read it as a distinctly post-humanist novel or a humanist novel kind of in post-humanist clothing or or maybe both at the same time and um you know to what degree do we take seriously, you know, um, Mr. Paul, the father's questions about the human heart that have been, I, I was just looking at my copy, like are obviously quite prominent, um, you know, is used for promotional, um, his question about the human heart, right? This, this incredible, you know, this um, falling back on these um, tropes around human specialness as being intrinsic and based in, you know, this po simultaneous poetic and material understanding of the human and the heart as being crucial to that. Or and to what degree is that held up as a kind of ironic continuation of the anthropocentric perspective that got us into this situation in the first place of, you know, of these rigid hierarchies and disposability, et cetera. So, I mean, I'm just doing the same thing and just asking questions, but I mean, this is, I find it a very, um, I guess, productively, generatively slippery novel and I feel like you can have it both ways I know the way I want to have it <laughs> but uh, I'm curious to know um you know how the two of you read it as being you know to what degree did you read it as as really providing or or promoting a, this a kind of critique of of um you know a kind of humanist reading of the unique human with and the human heart and how much that romantic romantic view of the human was upheld <laughs> i mean Dominic, do you want to <laughs> <laughs> pretty unfair i thought that i'm not the one lead. i'm not the chair here <laughs> pretty unfair for me well one, one thing i'd say and it's not um, by any means a full answer to uh, the question of course but is just that that final disposal um of clara which it reads as quite um cruel from a human perspective but i think as as eugene was mentioning earlier is is not 
you know, a negative experience for, for her at the time. Um, I mean, this, that sort of disposability is tied to acceptance of death because it is, um, it is dying is what Kara is doing. Um, and just thinking about that back in terms of Never Let Me Go uh, as well, of course, the, all the exploitation of the clones in that novel is driven by the fact that um, uh, the normals, the regular humans, um, don't want to die. Mm. And yet, what is the um, what is actually the value of the life that they are continuing, where it's just this sort of very denuded um, form of um, of living achieved through exploitation? Um, so I. I think there is there's something about um, a critique of a human culture that is uncomfortable with accepting death and loss there. And I think that is very much the target of Ishiguro's critique and using either clones or AFs who don't approach their death and their own disposability in the same way is of course a way for him to go into that critique. So I think that's, that, that's yeah. part of that's such a great point Dom um because I think I think absolutely I mean and and right Chrissy said you know puts her foot down right like you're not going to open her up she needs to be allowed her slow fade again these euphemisms you know that are so so just um so perfectly provocative right um your slow fade your lifted but um but I think that's a really nice connection as well the, the kind of because yeah, that's not one I necessarily have thought of, but that that anxiety around death is such a, a great connection to to um, thinking about a transhumanist can critique, which I think probably we could, we could all agree that that it's it's not there's not much to doubt that um, that Ishiguro's or these texts anyway are pretty skeptical about transhumanism, right? <laughs> that the fantasy of of uploading one's consciousness or continued life or freezing yourself, whatever you're going to do to maintain health, uh, life and assumedly health indefinitely. Right. And that one does that any cost and that, and that, you know, if it means shedding your body, if it means freezing, it, if it means doing whatever it's, you know, longer life is always desirable regardless also of the quality of that life. But, um, I think that's a really nice point because I think too, it, like I said, it like really forces the reader to consider the assumptions that lead us to view certain endings or certain um, um, situations as, as you say, as an affront to decency. And what do we mean by, I think using that term, Eugene, that you said is so favored by him that, you know, what do we see as decent and then the larger question is, who is we, <laughs> really? Right? Like, who, who is we? Who are we to decide, you know, um, what is a decent and um, life and a decent way to conclude a life um, um, for a human or otherwise? I feel like, I think there's just a lot, if, if nothing else, the novels remind me of my own fallibility, as a, like of human fallibility, including my own as a reader, right? And the degree to which I don't know, you know, the degree to which I don't know the um, other human experience, let alone more than human experience. I think that's probably why his, his novels are so well received globally, I guess, because it makes us think about these things. Um, 
Dom, I feel like you, you kind of answered that question really well. I'm not really sure how <laughs> to add to that. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, Very kind of you. Uh, but, you know, I, I like, I was thinking of that term, slow fade. I think that's that's always used, wasn't it, in the novel? I really, that really moved me, you know, mm -hmm. that Clara should be allowed her slow fade. And and I, I suppose for her, it's something that she'd prefer to be, you know, on her own to order her memory. She would like that slow fade rather than, you know, to be used as some kind of experiment um, for some other movement, which is interesting, which is interesting comment in itself about, you know, the legitimacy of the artificial friends and technology and so on. She had an opportunity to be part of a political movement, I suppose, right at the very end. But, you know, uh, she, she would rather just be on her own to order her memories, which, again, is very human. And I was thinking, I'm not sure how to answer your question, Amelia, which I think is a really good one. Um, but the whole thing about post-humanist or even humanist, I was reminded as you asked that question about something that Ishiguro said when he was doing publicity for the Buried Giants. And I don't know if you knew this, but you know the um, science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin had a bit of an online spat with Ishiguro, and it's really not in Ishiguro's personality, I think, to have online spats with anyone. He is not on social media, but you know, in one of her blogs, she decided to do a massively scathing review of the Buried Giant, partly because it seems that she, she saw something he said about I'm worried my readership would not want to read my books because they would see it as fantasy. And she completely saw that as an insult to the genre that she's writing in. Mm -hmm. uh, this online, this this sparked a bit of a debate, you know, uh, and Ishiguro, you know, almost actually did a book tour with, I think, uh, or did a, a speaking tour with Neil Gaiman, who turned out to be a supporter of Ishiguro's talking about genre and genre boundaries and why there should even be genre boundaries and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but during the time he was doing publicity, I remember he said, as part of this controversy, and his answer to it is, look, if people are asking me, because I think there are pixies and fairies in, in, in the novel, he said, you know, if 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 he are, if, if people ask me, I am on the side of the ogres, the dragons, the pixies, the fairies, i.e., I have no problem with genre. I fully respect the people who write genre, uh, genre fiction and I'm not an expert on all these kinds of mythical characters, but I fully respect them, these characters. So, and that for me was a bit of a hint that he is, he has no problem with magical characters, speculative characters. And so he does not see them in, in a pejorative sense. And I realize he treats them the way he does his other characters. Um, and in various things he has said about his writing, and even in recent interviews for Clara and the Sun, he has actually said that he interviews his his protagonists and his narrators, um, at, uh, and and he and he says, you know, it is not, you know, he whether he came up with Kathy or with Clara, you know, or decision to go with a clone or a, a, a robot. Um, it's not because he specifically, you know, made that conscious decision. I mean, obviously we can dispute that, but he does say he interviews different potential narrators and with an artist of floating world, you'd be interested in this, Dominic. He said in, in a recent one of the kind of many talks for Clarence Sun, he said he tried a completely different character uh, in Arse Floating World. But it failed within the first few moments of writing, and he he realized you're not going you're not working out as a as as a narrator 
uh, protagonist, I'm ditching you and I'm going with someone else. He eventually came up with Ono, which worked much better. Um, so he does he does say he interviews fictional narrators and, you know, Clara was just a perfect vehicle for the story he wanted to tell. So I think that also says a lot about the way he views um, life in, in some ways, even if, if it's fictional life. So I think perhaps more post-human than humanist. I, I think he was very, again, from what he said before, he's very you know, skeptical about the way uh, corporations have uh, have the money to make all the big decisions maybe unchecked about AI, about gene editing, which he, you know, he's not against technology and he's excited about the future, but he's also worried that we're not having the conversations about some of the problems and dangers inequalities that they are generating. And I think in many ways, he is with the pixies, the fairies, he is with the artificial friends and robots. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he doesn't see that much of a difference after all between them and mm-hmm. us, if you like, for them, maybe he just sees life and decency. I don't know. But I think there's certainly that consistency in his writing where he 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 views them with he writes these characters with compassion, whether they are human or they're not. And I think that in itself is quite interesting. So which is why I think maybe Amelia's answer your question, maybe more post human mm-hmm. than humanist, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Just my two pence, I guess. We're actually almost out of time for today's episode, I'm afraid. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion so far. Maybe just as a final closing question, just for short answers, if, if I may. Um, I alluded in my intro to um, how sort of increasingly secured Ishiguru's um, status within contemporary uh, fiction has, has become. Do we think that this uh, novel, Clara and the Sun, is going to continue to secure that status? And if so, does any, would either of you like to offer any th- final thoughts on why? Well, maybe I'll say something because I think Eugene deserves the final thought on this because I can't, I can't, like I say, I, I keep saying the caveat, like I'm not an Ishiguro. So, I mean, if I have anything to do with it, absolutely. <laughs> because I think for, for my purposes, for my selfish, you know, scholarly um, interests, I mean, it's absolutely spot on. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. incredibly um I mean, I, I have no, I have no desire in ranking the novel or judging it in terms of its, in terms of its literary um, um, quality, because that's just, you know, that's such an impossible task, right? But I think in terms of the this ongoing investigation into um, what it means to be a human but and also what it means to be a person in a related way and and i guess even more fundamentally what it means to have ethical significance and who gets to decide what counts who counts what counts um you know what matters and and it's i think that's the kind of story that i find the most um the most pressing right now, I guess maybe at all times, but it feels like more so now than ever. And so this kind of work, I think, does that in such a brilliant way. I mean, the part of my, I'm certainly it was a leading question about, about the human versus the humanist, post-humanist. But I do think there's something that's going on here with questioning this, you know, this poetic, romantic idea of the special, unique human being that 
really furthers a kind of posthumanist agenda of decentering the human, thinking about other modes of being and knowing, um, being in the world, knowing the world and its inhabitants that I find really inspiring as much as they're often come to not the greatest ends, but inspiring for thinking further about thinking beyond a kind of really narrow anthropocentric idea of what it might mean to be, to exist. And any kind of text that starts to gesture towards that, I find so exciting. I can, can't imagine why it wouldn't be an important, significant, meaningful work <laughs> that would continue his, his reputation. And Eugene, do you want to give any final thoughts on that? I think Amelia should have gone last. I think that that was absolutely amazing. Um, I think I completely agree with everything you said. Um, and I think those are exactly the reasons why it's important. It's that ongoing conversation that about us and our status, um, I think, and the status of life, um, which I think is really something he's been, you know, really concerned about. I've, I take your point, Amelia, about you know, that, that quote at, at the back of the book, you know, you, it's not who you think it'll come from. Um, <laughs> but he is interested in things like human relationships and what it means to remember or love someone. Um, and this very much, you know, is it, it's probably the key theme in, in this novel. I've got a very kind of like personal connection with The Buried Giant. So I guess I'm unusual in that being one of my favorite all-time Ishikura novels. Um, but uh, I think this in many ways, just at 300 pages, um, is very much, I guess, uh, a, a very compact, lucid, um, and very clear, I suppose, study and, and conceptualization of those ideas that Amelia just mentioned, said so well, I'm not even going to try to replicate what she said. But, you know, uh, I think for those reasons, I think he has brought everything about the human condition that he's concerned with, as well as concerns about ethics and technology, and almost as a passing a warning shot to all the corporations uh, um, uh, uh, scientists who are continuing to develop technologies to think about everything from risks to, you know, who we are as human beings. Um, I think he's posing all these questions and throwing them out there as part of his kind of engagement with what's happening around the world and his own kind of shock and, and worries about you know, the way things have turned politically, um, globally and medically, you know, in the last year or so. Um, so I think, yes, it, it will for many reasons. Um, and I think the most important reasons are the ones that, you know, Amelia and, and you don't have kind of mentioned today, really. Thanks, Eugene. Well, we shall wrap it up there for uh, Clara and the Sun. Um, but, you know, I think now that we've talked it over so thoroughly, I'm very excited for my second reading of the novel now. Can't wait for that. I'm sure that you're both excited uh, for that too. And obviously, because this is such a recent novel, the um, analysis of it um, will continue for some time uh, to come. And it's going to be really fascinating, I think, to see what uh, what work does come out, um, responding uh, further to Clara and the Sun and hopefully... Um, for anyone uh, listening today, we've offered a few a few starting points there in this uh, this discussion as well. So thank you both um, very much indeed, uh, Eugene and Amelia, and I hope that everyone has enjoyed this discussion.